0: Jeremiah. We are in the book of Jeremiah and chapter one. Jeremiah, um, remember we are in the pre-Babylonian prophets. We've already covered all the pre-Assyrian prophets who were ministering before the coming of the Assyrian empire. And the Assyria sacked Israel, the 10 tribes in the north in 722. Now we come to the pre-Babylonian prophets. Judah was left behind in the south And the prophets were like Habakkuk and Nahum and Zephaniah. They came in and they began to minister to both Israel or Judah. They began to minister to Judah, warning of their coming exile if they didn't straighten out. And then they also spoke judgments against Assyria. Because Assyria had conquered the entire world, that known world. And they had gotten incredibly cocky. God was making sure that they knew that he was the one who ordained them to be able to do this and not them, and he was bringing them down. That brings us to the last two pre-Babylonian prophets, and that is Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And along with Isaiah, these are two giant books. And Isaiah is the largest. Jeremiah comes in about second, and Ezekiel as well. Jeremiah was also a pre-Babylonian prophet. He ministered to Judah, the southern kingdom, during 627 To 580 BC. Around 595, Nebuchadnezzar II, the king of the Babylonian Empire, would come in in his first a wave and begin to attack Judah. In 580, he began to, base 580, he began to establish um, his puppet kings and began to control and manipulate kings and that kind of stuff. And then later he would come back in 586 and basically conquer them. Jeremiah ministered all the way through the exile. And when Nebuchadnezzar came in, he left Jeremiah basically in the ashes of the ruined Jerusalem as a result of that. He ministered during several kings. The two kings that dominate the story are going to be Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. These are the two kings. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah. The book of Jeremiah is arranged in three major divisions. In Jeremiah chapter one through 25, 38, the focus is on the impending doom that is coming to Judah at the hands of the Babylonians. Those are the first 25 chapters. Then in Jeremiah 26 through 45 is primarily a biographical account that covers the fall of Judah and the people being taken to captivity. So, the first 25 chapters is mostly Jeremiah preaching doom and judgment to Judah. And chapters 26 through 45 is Jeremiah, a biographical account of that judgment, of that invasion, of that exile, and Jeremiah being carried off into Egypt by his own people. And then the last chapters, 46 through 52, are the oracles of Jeremiah. And basically, that's where he looks at all the surrounding nations. He condemns them. And then he condemns Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, saying, you will fall just like Assyria fell as well. So those are the three major divisions of the book of Jeremiah. So the first division, we're going to start reading in chapters 1. one, And this first chapter begins with Jeremiah pronouncing the doom that is about ready to come to Israel or Judah. So, chapter 1, verse 1. The following is a record of what Jeremiah, son of Hilkah, prophesied. He was one of the priests who lived at Enathoth, in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. And Yahweh began to speak to him in the thirteenth year that Josiah, son of Ammon, ruled over Judah. Yahweh also spoke to him when Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, ruled over Judah. And he continued to speak to him until the fifth month of the eleventh year. That Zedekiah, son of Josiah, ruled over Judah. That was when the people of Jerusalem were taken into exile. Yahweh said to me, Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. So Yahweh is making it very clear before Jeremiah was ever formed in his mother's womb, he had already intentioned to use Jeremiah as a prophet. My assumption is you could apply that verse to all of us, that God has a plan for us and a purpose for us even before we're born. But contextually speaking, this is primarily for Jeremiah. I answered, O Yahweh God, I really do not know how to speak well enough for that, for I am too young. Yahweh said to me, do not say I am too young, but go to whomever I send you and say whatever I tell you. Do not be afraid of those to whom I send you, for I will be with you to protect you, says Yahweh. Then Yahweh reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I will most surely give you the words. You are to speak to me, to speak for me. Know for certain that I hereby give you the authority to announce to the nations and the kingdoms that they will be uprooted, torn down, destroyed, and demolished, rebuilt, firmly planted. We've seen this with Moses. Moses' immediate response is, I can't speak. I can't go before the people. And God says, his answer was, I am with you. I am with you. That is all that matters. And just like with Isaiah, God came and sent the seraph to put a coal on Isaiah's mouth and purify his mouth for the ministry of prophecy. And so we see Yahweh touching Jeremiah's mouth here as well. So these reoccurring themes of calling prophets and how he calls them, and their hesitancy or their, their, they believe their inability to actually be able to do this is a recurring theme. So in verse 11, later Yahweh asked me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I answered, I see a branch, an almond tree. Then Yahweh said, You have observed correctly. This means I am watching to make sure my threats are carried out. Now remember, the branch is a symbol of Israel and also Judah. And these tree imageries often represent them. So the metaphor here is that Jeremiah sees Israel or Judah. Israel has already gone off into exile. Jews are about ready to go to exile. And God says that my threats are serious and they will be carried out against you. Yahweh again asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see the pot of boiling water is tipped toward us from the north. And when Yahweh said, Then Yahweh said, This means destruction will break out from the north on all who live in the land. For I will soon summon all the peoples of the kingdoms of the north, says Yahweh. They will come, and the kings will set up their thrones near the entrances of the gates of Jerusalem, and they will attack all the walls surrounding it and all the towns in Judah. And this way I'll pass sentence on the people of Jerusalem and Judah because of their wickedness. For they rejected me and offered sacrifice to other gods, worshiping what made they made with their own hands. So in the second vision, Jeremiah sees a boiling pot of water. This might seem weird imagery to use when you're talking about a pagan nation with a military come in to judge you and condemn you. But when people attack cities, they would use Everything they had to defend themselves. So when they were surrounded by the enemy and they were inside their city walls, they would use everything. And we've talked about this before. They would use um, boiling water. They would drop rocks on people, drop fire, boiling feces and urine, everything they possibly had. And so this idea of boiling water is it's not your boiling water. It's Nebuchadnezzar. It's all the nations in the north. And Nebuchadnezzar would make alliances with other nations in order to do this. So this will be poured out on you and you will be burned as a nation. Verse 17. But you, Jeremiah, get yourself ready. Go and tell these people everything I instruct you to say. Do not be terrified of them, or I will give you good reason to be terrified of them. I, Yahweh, hereby promise to make you as strong as a fortified city and an iron pillar and a bronze wall, you will be able to stand up against all who live in the land, including the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and all the people of the land. They will attack you, but they will not be able to overcome you. For I will be with you to rescue you, says Yahweh. Now, this is where God's promises for Judah were drastically different than it was for Israel. Because in Israel, he said, the Assyrians are coming. They're going to come. They're going to take you. They're going to wipe you out and most of Israel was killed, and the few that were left behind were taken off into exile and scattered across the empire. Now, the reason that was, is Israel was incredibly wicked. When we're going through kings, remember they they had no good kings. Jehu just barely had some goodness in him, but it didn't last long, and they had mostly false prophets, and All the righteous people, by the time the Assyrians came, that were living in Israel, had already migrated and moved to Judah in the south. So that when the Assyrians came, there were no righteous people left in Israel. And so they were all taken and completely and utterly destroyed. We've already seen with the pre-Babylonian prophets that God is making the point that Judah has become worse than Israel. And they have committed even grievous greater acts of grievous sins of idolatry and murder and social injustice and all that kind of stuff than even Israel before them. However, don't mistake that with the fact that there was still a remnant in Judah that Israel did not have. There were still some faithful people in Judah that had not bowed the knee to the gods and they had not given up their loyalty to Yahweh and they had not practiced social injustice. So even though the nation as a whole had become worse, Not every single person had become that way, unlike Israel in the north. So what God then promised with Judah is that when Nebuchadnezzar came, God would protect the righteous from Nebuchadnezzar, destroying them completely, killing them. They would be carried off into exile, but they would not be massacred and they would be taken care of in exile. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar took care of people in exile way better than the Assyrians ever did. If you kind of resisted Nebuchadnezzar and flicked your finger at him, so to speak, he would crush you. There was no mercy. He was not a nice guy. But if you did what you were supposed to do and mind your own business, pay your taxes, stayed in your place, he would let you live. And he had a live and let live kind of a mentality on that one. And so what God is promising the righteous people of Judah is if you don't resist this, because this is the will of God, and if you stay faithful to Yahweh, and we saw this a little bit in the book of Habakkuk, that God would take care of them. That God would take care of them because they were the righteous. And remember with um, chapter 18 of Genesis with um, Abraham, God does not believe in collateral damage. He does not wipe out the righteous with the wicked. Yes, the righteous might suffer in a fallen world. They might be persecuted. They might not have a happy-go-lucky life, but they will not come under the condemnation and the judgment, the destruction of Yahweh along with the wicked. And that's what God is promising him here, as though in the first paragraph, 15 and 16, he's saying you're going to be destroyed, and 17 He's promising that you will be taken care of, the righteous will. So chapter 2, he goes on, Yahweh spoke to me, he said, go and declare in the hearing of this people of Jerusalem, this is what Yahweh says, I found memories of you, how devoted you were to me in your early years. I remember how you loved me like a new bride. You followed me through the wilderness, through a land that had never been planted. Israel was set apart for Yahweh, and they were like the first fruits of the harvest to him. All who tried to devour them were pun- punished. Disaster came upon them, says Yahweh. So remember, this is the wilderness journey out of Egypt with Moses. Now listen, verse 4, to what Yahweh has say, to say that you destruct the sins of Jacob. All your family groups from nation of Israel, this is what Yahweh says. What fault could your ancestors possibly found in me that they st- strayed so far from me? They paid allegiance to worthless idols, and so became worthless to me. They did not ask, Where is Yahweh, who delivered us out of Egypt, who brought us through the wilderness, through a land of desert and sands and rift and valleys, through a land of drought and deep darkness, and through a land to which no one travels and where no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land, so you can enjoy its fruits and rich bounty. But when you entered my land, you defiled it. You made the land I call my own, loathsome to me. Your priests did not ask, where is Yahweh? Those responsible for the teaching of my law did not really know me. Your rulers rebelled against me. Your prophets prophesied the name of God, but all. And they all worshipped idols that could not help them. Now, we've seen this contrast with other prophets. But remember, I hope you begin to appreciate now by going through the prophet's One, many things, but one of them is how many times God recounts his history with them. How much he goes back to the Exodus, goes back in the wilderness, how he provided for them and took care of them. And this would be the equivalent of our communion, where we're constantly called in the epistles to go back to the cross. And remember how Christ brought us out of our own Egypt and brought us to our own wilderness into the promised land of salvation. And so this is what God is doing. He's constantly taking them back to their greatest and most significant historical salvific moment. And how he took care of them and blessed them in a way that no other God ever, ever did. And yet they responded by going to other gods and worshiping them, gods who could not help them. And no matter how many times these gods failed them, and how many times God showed up to rescue them, they never learned their lesson. Verse 9. So once more, I will state my case against you. Now notice this is courtroom language. Says Yahweh, I will also state it against your children and grandchildren. Go west, across the sea, to the coast of Cyprus. Cyprus is a little island in the Mediterranean, well, it was a big island, in the Mediterranean, right off the coast of Israel. And see, send someone east to Keter and have them look carefully. See if such a thing has this has ever happened. Has a nation ever changed its gods, even though they are not really gods at all? But my people have exchanged me, their glorious God, for a God that cannot help them at all. Now here's his charge against them, and this is so interesting. This is a unique charge that God gives in Jeremiah that he does not really do in most of the other prophets. And his charge is this. You can look everywhere in the ancient world and those nations, Egypt and Babylon, Cyprus, everywhere, they have remained loyal to their gods forever. Their loyalty to their nationalistic God has been the one that they 've been faithful to over and over and over again, generation after generation after generation through hundreds of th- and hundreds and thousands of years and even though their gods are not real and they're just basically idols, statues, they don't ever change the idols or the statues that are in their living rooms, so to speak. They have been loyal throughout the generations. And so God then comes to Israel and says, but you're weird. You're so weird because you have a real glorious almighty God who actually is living and take care of you and dwells with you. And you change me out all the time. You changed me out for other gods. but all you changed me out for Egyptian gods. You changed me out for golden calves. You changed me out for Marduk. You changed me out for everybody. I've never in all my life, which is a long time for God, have ever seen anybody change out gods in the ancient world like you do today. And in this way, Judah and Israel are like the Proto-American, where we change religions like we change clothes. And I mean that as a nation, not like all of you people. This is what God is saying. I have never seen this before. This is weird. Verse 12, be amazed at this, O heavens. Be shocked and utterly dumbfounded, says Yahweh. Do so because my people have committed a double wrong. They rejected me, the fountain of life-giving water, and they have dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns which can't even hold water. So this is what God says. My witness is all of creation. They have watched you too. And this is my charge against you. You change religions and you change gods like nobody does. And you have given up the water of life for broken cisterns. Now remember cisterns are those large holes carved in the ground like in bedrock, not dirt. And they're huge. They're bigger than your living room. And they hold water. But over hundreds of years, the ground shifts. They crack. And when they crack, they can no longer hold water. And a cistern that does not hold water is useless when you live in a culture that is utterly dependent upon water and rain all the time. And this is what God says. When you change gods, you become useless. And this is another reoccurring theme throughout the prophets is that by worshiping gods, you have yourself become worthless by worshiping the worthless gods. Verse 14, Israel is not a slave, is he? He was not born into slavery, was he? If not, why then is he being carried off? Like lions, his enemies roar victoriously over him. They raise their voices in triumph. They have laid his land waste. His cities have been burned down and deserted. Even soldiers from Memphis and Taphanes have cracked your skulls, people of Israel." So he says look you weren't born in slavery now you would say yeah technically there were people who were born in slavery in the ancient times of israel when they were in egypt and that kind of stuff but not as a nation remember the birth of israel as a nation came when they were at mount sinai it was at mount sinai when god goes to the prophets he describes giving birth to israel out of egypt so to speak and bringing them through the red sea which was their baptism and then bring them to the promised land. And, and before they got there was Mount Sinai. And when he gave the law to them and appeared to them, that was their birth as a nation. That's when he adopted them. And so when he adopted them, they became born as a nation. They were not born into slavery. They were born into freedom under the almighty living God. And that's what he means. You have brought all this on yourself, Israel, verse 17, by deserting Yahweh your God when he was leading you along the right path. What good will it do to you then to go down to Egypt to seek help from the Egyptians? What good will it do to you to go over to Assyria to seek help from the Assyrians? Your own wickedness will bring about your punishment. Your unfaithful acts will bring down discipline on you. Know then and realize how utterly harmful it was for you to reject me, Yahweh your God, to show no respect for me, says Yahweh God, who rules over all. It is to your detriment when you forsake the only God that loves you, the only God that has rescued you, the only God who can actually take care of you. Verse 20 Indeed, long ago you threw off my authority and refused to be subject to me. You said, I will not serve you. Instead, you will give yourself to other gods in every high hill and under every green tree, like a prostitute sprawls out before her lovers. I planted you in the land like a special vine of the very best stock. Why in the world have you turned to in, turned into something like a wild vine that produces rotten, foul-smelling grapes? You can try to wash away your guilt with a strong detergent. You can use as much soap as you want, but the stain of your guilt is still there for me to see, says Yahweh God. How can you say, I have not made myself unclean? I have not paid all allegiance to the gods called Baal. Just look at the way that you've behaved in the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom was a valley on the western side of Jerusalem. And it was a valley where they sacrificed a lot of animals and humans to the pagan gods. And when you stood in the valley and looked up, you could see the temple with the glory of God. In it. So right in his presence, they were sacrificing to the pagan gods. Think about the things that you have done there. You are like a flighty young female camel that rushes here and there, crisscrossing its path. You are like a wild female donkey brought up from the wilderness. In her lust, she sniffs out the wind to get the scent of a male. No one can hold her back when she is in heat. None of the males need wear themselves out, chasing after her. At mating time, she is easy to find. This is a very graphic image. But remember, they are used to animals. So we're like well, not used to because we didn't grow up on a farm. Um, some of you might have been on a farm or worked on a farm at different times. But they were used to seeing animals in heat and going on. All that stuff was pretty. And even kids. That was pretty normal for kids to see, even though I would never want my kids to see that. But that was what they were used to, that imagery. And so he's making it clear like the female camels and female donkeys are really, really aggressive. And that's what you're like when it comes to idolatry. Verse 25 Do not chase after the other gods until your shoes wear out and your throats become dry. But you say, It is useless for you to try and stop me because I love those foreign gods and want to pursue them. Just as a thief has to suffer dishonor when he is caught, so the people of Israel will suffer dishonor for what they have done. So So will their kings and officials, their priests and their prophets. They say to a wooden idol, you are my father. And they say to a stone image, you gave birth to me. Yes, they have turned away from me instead of turning to me. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. But where are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them save you when you are in trouble." The sad sad fact is that you have as many gods as you have towns Judah. Now, there are two contradictory things that are being portrayed here by God. The first one is that you call out to me, uh, Judah, and you say, when have we been unfaithful to you? We've never been unfaithful to you. And then they also say, but I can't give up my pagan gods. I love them too much. And so they're contradicting themselves. They don't get that they're unfaithful and they're publicly admitting that they can't give up their pagan gods. And this is very, very, very common with people who are constantly in affairs over and over again. They get so steeped into that affair and so addicted to it that they can't give it up even when they want to. Even when they know it's wrong and they can't want to get out of it. But at the same time, they've rationalized what they're doing so much that they think they can be loyal to their spouse and do their affair at the same time, and there's nothing wrong with it. And it's a weird thing that they start thinking when they get involved in that activity. And so God is saying they're doing the same thing with the idols in that kind of a way. But the other contradictory statement that he's pointing out here is that you worship your gods all the time, and you think that they're better than me. That's why you go to them instead of me. But when you're in real serious trouble... You cry out to me for help instead of your gods. And if you really truly believe that your gods were real and could help you, then why don't you go to them? And if you know that they can't help you and I'm the only real God, then why don't you stay faithful and committed to me and worship me? There's that contradiction too. And that one we can relate to a little bit more. Um, No, we may not be idolaters in the sense that he's describing them here, But we know what it's like to pursue other things, finances, entertainment, other counsel, all this kind of stuff before like, oh, yeah, maybe I should pray about that and really get on our knees. And we know in our minds and we know in our hearts that God truly is the only ones capable of. But we go very quickly to what we can see and what everybody else is going to oftentimes instead of God first. So these are the two contradictory things he's pointing out. And this is true in our own lives if we really are honest with ourselves. Why do you try to refute me? All of you have rebelled against me, says Yahweh. It did not go, it it did no good for me to punish people. They did not respond to such correction. You slaughtered your prophets like voracious lions. So he says, why are you trying to refute me? Your logic is unsound. And you're arguing against the divine God of the universe. It's kind of like tonight, just tonight at dinner, we had corn on the cob and corn on the cob gets in your teeth and all that kind of stuff. And so we're like, man, we're going to get the dental floss out. And I'm like, I'm going to have to use dental floss tonight before I go on this meeting with everybody. And my daughter was like, dental floss doesn't work. It doesn't get the food out. And I'm like, yeah, it does. It's like really good. Lots of people use it. She's like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't work for me. And I'm like, yes, it does work. She's like, that's your opinion, Natasha. There are thousands upon thousands of doctors who give you floss all the time and tell you to do this. And there are millions upon millions of people who floss all the time. And you're this teeny little girl with little experience arguing against the facts of the multitude that it's just our opinion. You're arguing with us is completely illogical and futile. Like it doesn't make sense And that's what God feels like with us a lot of times. when we're like, no, but, and we may be more civilized and more sophisticated when we come up with those arguments with God. But in the end, we sound like my 10 year old daughter about dental floss to God and perspective. And so this is what he's arguing. Your logic is flawed. Verse 33, my, how good you have become at chasing your lover's why you could even teach prostitutes a thing or two now that's a horrible insult to say something like that and even your clothes are stained with the lifeblood of the poor who had not done anything wrong and you did not catch them breaking into your homes yet in spite of all these things you have done you say i have done nothing i have not done anything wrong So Yahweh cannot really be angry with me anymore. But watch out. I will bring down judgment on you because you say I have not committed any sin. This sounds like America. This is the voice of America. When we get involved in all of our things, say we haven't done anything wrong. And we say, I have not committed any sin. Why do you constantly go about changing your political allegiance you will get no help from Egypt, just as you did not get help from Assyria. Moreover, you will, not, you will come away from Egypt with your hands covering your faces in sorrow and shame, because Yahweh will not allow your rel- reliance on them to be successful, and you will not gain any help from them. Chapter 3, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and leaves, and she leaves him and becomes another man's wife, he may not take her back again.